Hello, and welcome to another episode of the William Branham Historical Research Podcast. I'm your host, John Collins, the author and founder of William Branham Historical Research at william-branham.org. And with me, I have my co-host, researcher, minister, and friend, Charles Paisley, the founder of ChristianGospelChurch.org. Together, we're examining the history and the intersections in history between William Branham and other key figures that either influenced or were influenced by the post-World War II healing revivals. Charles, today is the moment that everyone has been waiting for. I have gotten, I can't tell you how many emails and comments on the videos and messages, private messages, text messages about when are you going to get into the restoration movement and when are you going to tie this history that we've been talking about to some of the leaders that exist today and some of the movements that exist today. And I always respond, just, you know, hold your horses. We're going to get there soon. We have to lay some of the groundwork before we get to it. But now we're getting into basically what is the early stages of what will become later the New Apostolic Reformation, as well as countless other movements, sects, cults, um, you, you can almost name it, bad theologies, all of all of these things that we see today have in some way, shape, or form been influenced by the history that we're going to talk through today. I, I know, John. It, it, it's incredible stuff. You know, the, the topic we're going to talk at today, the Latter Rain Movement, is I have, I have so much literature, so much material on this, John, and, and it's, it's such a big topic. And, you know, we're just going to scratch the surface today, honestly. There, there's no way we can even, even get into it. You know, coming out of the message, and even my last years in the message, one of the things that drove me, you know, once I started to discover that these revelations we had been told William Branham brought to us directly from God. You know, once I started to discover, hey, this isn't the case, I became um, almost obsessed to figure out where did the stuff that we believe come from. Um, and in the message, you know, <laughs> what you believe is what the difference between heaven and hell. So I think that uh, cult mentality did a little bit of driving me into figure this stuff out. But this library behind me, John, is the product of trying to figure out where the stuff that we believed came. And a very large part of what we believe in the message came out of the Latter Rain movement. Uh, and uh, we're definitely going to get in and start touching on some of that today. And, you know, the Latter Rain movement and the, the healing revival are two two different movements, but they're parallel and intertwined a lot. Um, the two movements together um, could, could be referred to as the second wave of Pentecostalism. This is what starts off the second wave of Pentecostalism, which most uh, historians will tell you William Branham was the leading figure in the second wave of Pentecostalism. And this ended up producing the charismatic movement um, that you see, you know, uh, charismatic movement came in as strong, especially in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And then from that, that kind of then birthed a lot of what you'd call today the New Apostolic Reformation. And there, there is a, there's connections all the way back here to what happens in, in really the late 40s that, that kicks all of this stuff off. And uh, yeah, I, I'm excited to talk about that. John, do you want to talk a little bit about how William Branham came to Canada and how uh, the latter rain was inspired by the stuff that he was doing? 
Yes, and it's interesting because, so you took the approach of the books, and I'm, again, I'm fascinated by looking at the library that the viewers that are watching this on YouTube can see behind you. It's just incredible because you have literally recreated what William Branham had in in his own library and, you know, the access to the different doctrines, teachers, some of them good, some of them would be very questionable that he has based these quote-unquote revelations on. Well, I took a much different approach, and we both interestingly came to about the same conclusion, but I was I've always been like this. Whenever I was a child, my parents, you know, they'd get upset with me for Christmas presents. If they bought me a radio, well, the first thing that I did was take it apart and see what's inside of it, what made this thing work. And when I discovered that William Branham not only was participating in Laterane, but he was basically one of two main catalysts, and he created a splinter group within Laterane that birthed Jim Jones and People's Temple and some very, very horrific things. I wanted to take it apart. I wanted to know what made it, made it tick. So I started from the opposite end, not from where William Branham started. I began researching all of these different trails that led back to Laterane. And, oh my gosh, I could not believe that this thing that I was in created this whole mess. And you're right, it all started in Canada. Because after, you know, we've been covering the episodes leading up to William Branham's birth of fame, which is very important to understand. Well, many of those men had connections in Canada, and the Pentecostal movement as a whole was spread throughout the United States and Canada at that time. And there are two key figures in um, that would be bringing, you know, the message throughout the United States and Canada as as it was at this time, the latter rain message is what it was called. And uh, those were A.W. Rasmussen and Joseph Matson Bose, who are two figures that I had heard their names over and over and over on the recordings of William Branham. I just had no idea who these guys were. Yeah, and they're they're big they're big name guys. Like if you watch the Deep Call to Deep video, these are the men sitting literally right behind William Branham on the platform. They're they're at his meetings constantly. Yes, and we'll get into it in the later episodes, but it's literally because of these two men that the message exists today, the charismatic charismatic movement. They literally kept his mess, his uh, ministry intact after it began to implode. And um, it all started basically with one um, semi-famous revival tour through Canada. William Branham was asked to come speak at a you know a few different small churches and conventions and by this time everyone had heard of his 1947 fame that he had from you know from the St. Louis travels that we've been talking about from 1945 to 1947ish they were um you know his name was getting well recognized and this spread into Canada right and as you come into the middle in 1947, he comes in contact with Gordon Lindsay. And right. Gordon Lindsay is who then organizes these meetings actually across Canada for him. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's quite a big deal. And I know that historians have basically 
place the origins of latter rain in um, North Battleford, Saskatchewan. But from what I can tell from my research, that is just where latter rain became famous. William Branham was already establishing what would become the latter rain movement. It's just that these men helped carry it and basically helped make it, you know, popular and mainstream. You're 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 right there. You know, I think it is. You know, we historians will say that George Houghton met William Branham or encountered William Branham for the first time in Vancouver, and then he went back, and the latter rain revival fell out. But it's. It's quite likely, honestly, that George Houghton had heard about William Branham possibly as early as 1945. Um, George Houghton was connected with the Elam churches, um, and there, there's quite a few articles where he's connected with the with the uh, Elam churches. And uh, Kidson, uh, W. D. Kidson, who's we've mentioned before, who um, was very key in kicking off William Branham's first revival meetings in 1945 and 46 and the period of the rising to his fame obviously not the first time he preached ever yeah. but um he was also deeply connected to the elam churches right and it is it is it is quite likely i think that george houghton could have heard about william branham through kidson and the elam churches um you know well before 1947 but certainly by 1947 he had went to uh, william branham uh, meetings in canada um and he really became um, enamored. He became uh, mesmerized and amazed by what he saw happening in these Branham meetings uh, in Canada. Um, and he wants to go home and have the same kind of experiences in his in his church at the orphanage. And that Sharon Orphanage is, uh, well, it's, it's an orphanage, but it's also a Bible college. And uh, there's a lot of young people there that had grown up in the orphanage and also ones that were there from around the region who'd went there for Bible study reasons. Um, so there's a group of students there that he's, he's overseeing. Um, and this is where things kick off, uh, the, and the initial latter rain revival kind of begins. One thing I think that's worth, worth mentioning here is that <clears throat> George Houghton went to these revival meetings and was, was mesmerized apparently by the things that he saw and the miracles taking place. Um, but we have other eyewitness accounts from these exact same meetings. Um, men like Alfred Pohl, who is actually in a leadership with William Branham on the platform through these things, and confirms that a lot of these things that appeared to be supernatural, especially the healings, were hoaxes. Um, vast numbers of people that William Branham pronounced healed, like no doubt the very same people that George Houghton saw William Branham pronounced healed and was mesmerized by and went back home. Vast numbers of those people actually died just shortly after William Branham left town. And so on that side of things, <laughs> George Houghton was in one sense you could say taken uh, because what he saw was not entirely uh, accurate uh, and the beliefs that he took out of it wasn't entirely accurate. I think it's important to establish there are two categories of people that we're going to be discussing. There were the people who were coming as part of the revival as participants. They were the ones who they, you know, some people were healed in these things. We've established that before. There were a lot of people that were not, and there were a lot of people that were interested to see what was going to happen. 
And that's category one. Whenever we're talking to people who were a member of the message sect, that's usually the category that they fall in. They will usually say, well, there were healings. There were people healed, so this must have been by God. The other category of people, and this is the one that we're going to be focusing on heavily, were the ministers who were in Pentecostalism as Pentecostalism itself was fading out. And they were starting to see basically ministries fizzle out. And they saw the frenzy that was created by William Branham and what this thing that he had could do. They honestly didn't care really what it was that he had as long as it could bring the people back in. And I think a lot of them, you know, after reading some of the works of these men who later said William Branham was a good man, started out good, and then he went astray. If you examine what happened in each of their ministries, they're involved with this movement that's crumbling, and they see William Branham come in and bring excitement to it again. So they join into the hype, the excitement. They start drawing crowds, and I think each one believed that they could control what was going to happen after William Branham left so that you know William Branham would excite the people to come, they would establish control of their church, and then they would sway it in whatever direction that they wanted. But the problem was this grew so much bigger than one single church that they absolutely lost control of this thing. It was it was like a train barreling down the tracks with with no a section of no tracks. Suddenly the train has no direction, no heading, and they lost control of their own ministries. That's the category that we're going to be focusing on very heavily in this um, particular study. Yeah, I think that's well said. You know, when the when the Pentecostal denominations. Um, at, when this, when the revival really kicks off, it, it's the Pentecostal denominations that are financing and sponsoring this thing at the very beginning. The money is coming from the, the denominational organization and structures themselves. Uh, the UPC, the Assemblies of God, at their, you might say their corporate, their organizational level are financially supporting and moving William Branham and these meetings along. Um, and so he has a very high level of support within these groups at the very outset, but very quickly they realize that what's going on here is, is, is not all that it should be. Um, ranking members in these groups obviously realize that William Branham is not living up to his hype, right? And they, they hide this to some extent from the people, but the leaders recognize it. You know, in Canada, um, I mentioned Alfred Pohl. There was another ranking leader in the, in the Pentecostal churches up there named W.J. Taylor. I mean, obviously they recognize that all these people William Branham has prayed for has died uh, after he said they was healed. And church in Winnipeg, um, this, this is one of the better documented ones. When, when William Branham had his meetings in Winnipeg in this campaign, you know, in the same season that George Houghton is coming into contact with him. The church in Winnipeg, the, the newspapers discover that all these people William Branham said was healed died, and they start um, confronting the churches. So the Pentecostal churches uh, go out and they conduct their own investigation um, of his campaign in Winnipeg. And they go out and they interview uh, John. We have documentation on this. They interview every single person they can find that was at the meetings in Winnipeg um, who William Branham said was healed. And the Pentecostal churches could not find a single person 
that was actually healed at that revival meeting. Not one. Not one. Um, and it turned out that they had all just been practicing positive confession. You know, I'm healed, I'm healed, I'm claiming it. But then, at, so at these revivals, everybody's saying, I'm healed, I'm healed, I'm healed. But a few weeks later, it turns out they weren't really healed and their positive confession didn't work. And Winnipeg is one of the examples that I know of where they, apparently nobody was healed. When you're in this type of thing... <clears throat> And you have to have positive confession, otherwise, you know, the minister's telling you it doesn't work. You're not going to say, well, no, it didn't work, because then you've lost faith and you lose your chance at healing. Again, there were people healed, but a large majority of the people were not. And this will be published by the time this um, podcast goes out, but we recently discovered that um, this was such a problem for William Branham that he, like like we saw with John Alexander Dowie, he had to start referencing healings that happened outside of the town he was currently in. Mm -hmm. And he began pointing the newspaper reporters back to Jeffersonville. He says, I just raised a man from the morgue back in Jeffersonville. Go back there and look at it. And interestingly, he did that in Winnipeg. That is where he did that at, John, at the very place where all of the people, where they couldn't find a single evidence of healing, and even the churches hosting him couldn't prove it, you know. Yeah, and the newspaper reporters went back to Jeffersonville to verify, and Jeffersonville Evening News responded, no, there's no person who raised from a morgue. We would, (laughs) that would have made news here. We didn't see it. So they continued to investigate. And they found that there was another person who William Branham is the one who pronounced death on this person in a, in a home in private. And the family said that William Branham raised him from the dead because, well, William Branham said that he raised them from the dead. Yeah, it, it's incredible. And so if you if you put yourself maybe in like George Houghton's shoes, right, and you're sitting in in this meeting from your perspective, all these people are saying I'm healed. Um it's amazing, right? right. Um, all, all, nobody is saying I'm not healed. Everybody's saying I'm healed. And it appears that, that this amazing, widespread, miraculous thing has happened, right? And of course, he leaves and he goes back home and he don't know three and four weeks later that these investigations happen and they find out, wait a minute, <laughs> yeah. this was just positive confession. It, it wasn't actual healings. On the flip side, William Branham comes back and he says that this is basically his greatest healing revival tour ever, that there were thousands upon thousands of people healed. And this is what he's referencing, that the people who investigated could not find one. Yeah, and and he did pray for thousands of people. And, and, and the same man here who goes through and tells a lot of the people who died, he gives—this is just one of multiple— eyewitness accounts of what happened in in these Canadian meetings, but he gives probably the most detailed one. He he tells there was a small percentage of people who did get healed, who did get better, but the overwhelming majority did not, and a vast number of people that he pronounced healed died um, within a few weeks of him leaving town. So... Yeah, so but George Houghton sees this. He swept up in it. He he believes everything he's seeing is real. You know, he's got uh, he's amazed by it. He goes back to North Battleford, North Battleford, and uh, to his the orphanage and the Bible college that he runs, and they start having um, a prayer and a fast there. And this starts in October in 1947. They start praying. They start fasting. The students. 
um, and they they start looking for some kind of a, of a miraculous outpouring. They want these same things that they saw happening at William Branham's campaign meeting. They want to see these same things happen in their Bible college, basically. And they're fasting, they're praying, they're they're looking for this, and this is when the the latter rain revival um, really starts to to begin. By the time you get to February of that of the next year, so February 1948. Something starts to happen, and the the young people there, they start to have very um, ecstatic experiences, very euphoric experiences, um, and they believe that they're experiencing something, you know, uh, genuine, something supernatural. And, you know, when I, look, when I look at the latter rain, and I look at a lot of the people who participated in the healing revival in the latter rain movement... Um, Kind of like you said, John, I, I separate into two different groups because there, there's definitely people involved in this who are, they are charlatans. I mean, there's just no way around it. Um, they are dishonest. They're misleading. But then there's also, and, and this is perhaps the majority, you know, the, of the rank and file in there, they're honest hearted people, right? Uh, looking for, looking for some kind of connection to God. Um, and, they're they're just swept up in what's happening, right? And so there were there were two groups of people um, that were involved in in these revivals, in the healing revival, in the latter rain. You had your charlatans, right? You're, there were people who were definitely just in here taking advantage of people and manipulating them, um, misleading them. But then there's also an element of people who are um, genuinely looking for some kind of experience with God, genuinely looking for something um, of a spiritual connection with God. And, you know, I, I have a hard time, you know, obviously we don't know all these people personally, so it's hard to always know which category to put these people into. Um, and, and sometimes, you know, you start out in one category and move to the other <laughs> as well. But there's, there's people in here, they're looking... And I, I believe at the start, this is what the majority of the people of the Sharon Orphanage are like. They're people that are looking for some kind of an authentic experience um, with God. And they believe that what they've seen in William Brown's meetings is is legitimate and real. They, they want some kind of a, you know, repeat of this in their own midst. And so they, they go into this fasting and prayer. And after about four months of this, uh, three to four months, they have... Um, this this event, this latter rain revival event begins, and they all start having these ecstatic, euphoric experiences. Um, they they begin, uh, you know, they dance, they sing, they shout. Um, I I don't know about the message sex you come from, John, but this is this is very common where I come from, and and so this is. Uh, I, I don't speak about something, you know, I don't have, I have, I, I think I know exactly what this is like, okay? Yeah. And, and they're, you know, they're slain in the spirit, they're prophesying, they're, um, all of this kind of stuff, um, is, is breaking out, uh, in, in their, uh, in their group. And, and this gives rise to what is then going to become the whole Latter Rain movement. And this is called the Latter Rain Revival. And, you know, those, those euphoric experiences that you have, those ecstatic experiences that a person has, um, they're things that, um, they feel good. They're, they're emotional releasing. They're, um, something that, 
it just feels good to have them. And, yeah. you know, there's you see this in all kinds of religions, too. This is not something unique to Christianity. You, you see it in Hinduism. You see it in pagan religions. You see it in the Hare Krishna, different tribal religions, even Islam. There's there's there is uh, this genre of ecstatic experience across all of these religions. Um, yeah. And so it's not something that is e- inherently Christian even, um, but it is it is a seemingly real phenomenon that, that does happen in, in religious movements. And so this kind of thing is happening in the latter rain movement and starts to give rise, it gives rise to what, what's going to take place next. Yeah, I went to churches from South Carolina to Arizona and everywhere in between <clears throat> message churches. And there were some that had these experiences and, you know, I, I've even heard speaking in tongues and I think it's one church, not many of them. <clears throat> then the Branham Tabernacle, the joke within the message cult was that the Branham Tabernacle was called the Wax Figures Museum. Because when you go to it, it's dry and you know, you're not allowed to even clap in this building whenever I was, when my grandfather was in there. So it was very, very rigid. Um, there was no emotion, no, no frenzy whatsoever. And like you say, I studied ancient religions, modern religions. I studied everything as I'm trying to examine this latter rain. And I, you know, there are a lot of people that still today believe that these experiences are by God, and I'm not going to talk one way or the other about that, but what I can say is that I came to the same conclusion. Psychologically, there appears to be an effect among all religions, not just Christianity, that if you work yourself up into this frenzy, especially if you combine it with fasting— those and are, sleep deprivation. And sleep deprivation. If you get your body into this state where the body is going into self-preservation mode, that's generally how this occurs, then you become in this euphoric state that, quite frankly, there are several cults globally, not just Christian cults, but globally cults that form because they had a group of people who had this euphoric experience that they literally brought on themselves. Now, Again, I'm not going to say it's not of God. It could be of God. I don't know. That's a conversation separate from this. But the point I want to make here is that they they assumed that this was the Christian God and that they were the only ones that could do it, and they were going to bring it mainstream into Pentecostalism because they had done it. Right. And, you know, in, in their view, um, Pentecostalism has, has kind of dried out. It's become formulaic. Um, it, it's it's in a spiritual drought, and basically, they from their view, the original revival fires of Pentecostalism have died, and this thing happening in Latter Rain, this thing happening in the Healing Revival, is a restoration, a coming back of that original fire that had started burning in early Pentecostalism. Now, the, the early Pentecostals, they they believe they were the Latter Rain fulfillment, right? Right, and so. That is kind of where this this movement takes its name. They they believe they're just in one sense a continuation of that latter rain, and they call themselves the new order of the latter rain. So it's basically it's the latter rain two point um, <laughs> is in in their view. So and what they do is now they think they have even a higher level of this revival fire than the original Pentecostal movement, and so. You you can imagine just just at that aspect, 
that it begins to create conflict with the older Pentecostal denominations, right? Because in their view, we have Pentecostalism 2.0, okay? And the other Pentecostals are like, uh, no, your guys are going crazy. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, Pentecostalism to begin with, it did have these experiences, right? It certainly did, but the latter rain takes it to another level. Takes it to another level. And you can imagine the split that this would cause because you've got, as we've examined up to this point, you've got the mainstream leaders of the United Pentecostal Church or what what was becoming the early United Pentecostal Church who were sponsoring Branham, who were bringing and establishing this new thing that brought excitement back into the churches. And then suddenly you've got this rift where you've got the new guys versus the old guys and the new guys were basically saying our version is our version is better we are the latter rain what happened back at azusa street wasn't it it was something that was leading up to this event that we are now the leaders of yeah and and the experiences that these people are having and the prophecies that they're issuing um they begin to shape the direction that the latter rain movement takes and the distinctive doctrines that they end up adopting um, in fairly short order after the revival goes on. And, you know, very early on, very early on, two major churches join the Latter Rain Revival. Um, so it spreads bef- beyond North Battleford and the Sharon Orphanage um, fairly, fairly early on. And these two key hubs become very, very important. Uh, to the spreading of Latter Rain. And Joseph Matson Bose's church in, Phil- in the Philadelphia church, uh, it's located in Chicago. Um, it is one of the most important churches. I tell you, it is the most important church that joins the Latter Rain revival. Um, Joseph Matson Bose is more or less the informal head of the Independent Assemblies of God, the leading figure of the Independent Assemblies of God. And so the the Independent Assemblies of God becomes a bastion very early on for the Latter Rain Movement. And uh, Bose had published a magazine called The Herald of Faith. You know, I should have got... I have I have a whole collection of his magazines on my <laughs> shelf. I should have pulled some off here to show you. Uh, we can put some on the screen yeah, for the people. Yeah, I'll put some but, on the screen. But he, 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 he becomes... His Herald of Faith becomes the premier publication of latter rain ideas uh latter rain concepts and he is a very intimately connected to william branham and a very key figure in william branham's ministry especially um from the mid 50s on he's he's yeah. he's there in the early 50s but he probably becomes one of the most important figures from the mid 50s and there's some history there that is important to understand you had the Assemblies of God who wholeheartedly accepted this latter rain thing and then saw that they lost the reins to their own <laughs> denomination, basically. And they, again, it caused a big split. And so they started separating. And the independent Assemblies of God, which had joined into the main body of the Assemblies, was led by A.W. Rasmussen um, out in, I think it was Oregon, and then Joseph Matson Bose out of Chicago. They were basically the two leaders of this. And when the split happened, they chose the latter rain side of the split. So their independent assemblies of God churches, which was all across the nation, was in what was called the latter rain message, 
and that that phrase basically became the message cult so when you when you talk about the message you're talking about the latter rain message but then william branham went off into extremism of even this and joseph matson bose will get into this in you know a bit into the future he and jim jones literally salvaged william branham's imploding ministry in the later years when joseph matson bose brings jones into the independent assemblies of god yeah, you, it, it, again, that, that's that's well said. So the Assemblies of God and the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada, um, which are cousin groups, um, right. they 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 accidentally spawn the Latter Rain movement uh, because they're the ones who bring the figures around that start the thing off. And so by the time you get into 1949, they're going into damage control mode. They're trying to uh, dump water and put out the fire of the Latter Rain movement, and as as they're doing this, they start trying to purge Latter Rain from their organizations. And many of the churches that are influenced, and many of the people that are influenced by Latter Rain, they start exiting Assemblies of God churches, um, and they start joining Independent Assemblies of God, uh, which which had preexisted. Um, or another group that was very important that a lot of the Latter Rain people went to was the Elam Pentecostal churches. So those are two. Um, those are probably the two key Latter Rain groups very early on: the Elam churches and the Independent Assemblies of God. And I, I mentioned there were two important churches, individual churches that had joined the movement. One of them was the Philadelphia Church with Joseph Matson Bose, uh, who. We're probably going to talk about him the most because it was definitely the most impactful. But there was another church in Detroit called the Bethsaida Missionary Temple. And that church was another very critical church that joined Latter Rain very early on, like from the early days. And the majority of the publicity that Latter Rain got and the uh, spread of it can the early spread of its ideas can largely be attributed to the publicity that these two churches did because they were hubs of regional churches already. And so it's through those hubs that, that latter rain ideas spread into the broader Pentecostal community, right? Cause Sharon orphanage is a backwater. <laughs> and, and so it's, this is the, this is the conduit through which the ideas of latter rain spread out into, um, into the broader broader Pentecostal circles. It's also important to note that Indiana, the Indiana Assemblies of God, Indiana itself became a rogue state because Roy Weed, who was the district superintendent, joined the message and defended the message on basically on the floor of the Assemblies of God. So you've got Joseph Matson Bose from up in Chicago. You've got Roy Weed, who's working with Bose and basically keeping it together in the state of Indiana where William Branham is based. Right. And Roy Weed had a, a, a close relationship with William Branham. Uh, again, I've got some of his yeah. documented testimonies up here and he, he, like you said, John, um, he was the district superintendent of Assemblies of God here in Indiana, and he resisted the organization's attempt to purge Latter Rain out in Indiana. Um, and so in 1949, that, that attempt to purge Latter Rain out of 
the, the main Pentecostal organization started, but he resisted that effort here in Indiana, and he held off that purge in Indiana for several more years. It eventually happened. Eventually, they did clamp down on Indiana and push the Lateran out of their churches, but um, it, it had a delayed time in Indiana. It didn't really start happening until uh, 52, 53, 54, 55, and certainly by 56 was really the hard the hard time when they really clamped down hard to purge out latter rain from their churches in Indiana. And, you know, you're, you've also mentioned, John, how, you know, the message is connected to latter rain. You know, the, the latter rain movement is so complex. It takes so many twists and turns. It's, it's doctrines and ideas evolve very dramatically in very short spaces of time. Um, but the the message, and, and this is poorly understood, I'm going to be honest, this is poorly understood in a lot of the literature that's out there. There's not a lot of good literature, there's not a lot of good sources on this. Um, but I think perhaps one reason that we know about this, I always had, John, I always had an awareness that we were descended from the latter rain in the message. Oh, wow. Um, I didn't know we, that. Yes, we we latter rain stuff all featured prominently in our sect of the message. Um, our pastor preached latter rain topics. We always had a, a vague awareness. I always had a vague awareness that we were descended from latter rain, and but the depth of it I didn't really grasp until you know later years um, after I'd become a minister and I started really investigating origins of our beliefs and. The message is one of the main branches of the Latter Rain movement. The message is one of the yeah. central branches out of the Latter Rain movement. We're not the only branch, but we are a we were a Latter Rain branch. And if you look at our cousin branches that came out of Latter Rain, so John, I I watched a documentary one time on one of our cousin branches out of the Latter Rain movement. And I could not believe what I was seeing. It it was like the <laughs> Twilight Zone, John. It's I'm crazy. Like, like, oh my goodness, they look like us, they talk like us, they preach like us, they sing like us. They, t I mean, it's like I'm looking in a parallel universe. Uh, <laughs> their prophet just has a different name. And it's, yeah. it's incredible. Uh, and there, there are, yeah, there are multiple cousin movements. Um, and we, our doctrines, our ideas, everything is so similar. Um, and we all come off the same the same latter rain root is why. Yes, from the main sect, they tried to hide this. So I was unaware that this yeah. latter rain connection existed. But like you said, after I knew that it existed, I started studying the transcripts of William Branham. And wow, I was, I was floored. Like the main phrase that latter rain used from the book of Joel is all throughout William Branham's sermon. So yeah. he was definitely in it. And what's really interesting is when I was thinking of it from a religious standpoint, when I thought of the message as a religious cult instead of a political cult, I, um, I totally missed it. Because if you study it from that aspect, which I think is the mistake that all the historians do, they study the message, study William Branham as though it's a religious cult, it's too confusing to understand. You cannot understand it at all. But if you study it from the aspect that this was, or from the perspective that this was a political cult disguised as a religious cult, you're going to try to see how you can impact the largest number of people. And during the early formation of Latter Rain, this was a widespread phenomenon. People were just flocking to it. 
then whenever the split started happening in in Christianity, now it became, you know, cut completely in half. There was a split right down the middle. So 50% of your people was excited about Laterrain and the other 50% hated it. So from a strategic perspective, from a political cult, you've just lost 50% of your audience. So you have to distance yourself from it. So William Branham introduces this manifested son of God doctrine and creates basically this this offshoot branch of Laterrain that's sitting off to the side so he can say, well, I'm not part of Laterrain and I'm also not part of this other group. I've got something better. Yeah. I mean, I, I think we're going to have to break a second episode to, to get into some of the details <laughs> of this. And, and I, I definitely want to do that. I, I think, um, you know, John, the, the Laterrain movement, a lot of the, the framework of message ideology is pure latter rain. Okay, so the latter rain, the main thrust of the latter rain movement is restorationism. Um, and, and the latter rain movement never really called themselves the latter rain movement. You know, they, they more thought of themselves as the restoration movement. That That's yes. kind of an internal term that they would use, the restoration movement. And they, they viewed themselves as, you know, restoring um, an early form of the Christian church, right? Um, we are they they believed that early pentecostalism had restored tongues and holy ghost baptism experience jesus name right and they believe now we have the next stage of restoration and they 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 take this restoration mindset into hyperdrive uh, into overdrive and it they start touching all these different things we're restoring this now and we're restoring that now and we're restoring that and the other and this forms the framework which which they operate in, and this also forms the framework that that the message and all the other latter rain groups work in. And also, John, it forms the framework that carries down all the way to the present day through all these intermediate groups into some of the charismatic movement and the things of the day that you'd call the New Apostolic Reformation. Uh, yeah. it, it's it's basically um, a concept, and restorationism in general is not a it's not a new thing. Um, there's been restoration movements throughout throughout the history of the church, um, but this iteration of the restoration movement um, that that really came into focus with latter rain, it defined how the majority of people today look at restorationism. Right? Um, you go back three, four hundred years ago. The majority of Christians, I mean, hardly any Christians would have, have been of a restoration mindset. No. But today, as a result of latter rain, um, you know, a very large percentage of Christianity is restoration-minded. Um, there, there's an idea that the church is being restored back to an original form, and we want to find out what that original form is, and we want to adopt that original form. Um, and... And Latter Rain and William Branham specifically have a key role in defining what that looks like, how restoration is defined um, in broader terms. And some of the key things, and I think we're going to have to get into this in another episode to go deeper into it, but some of the key things is it's a restoration and emphasis on the sign gifts, on the manifestations of the Spirit, um, it's it's very experiential. It, it's a restoration of these power power to the church through the Holy Spirit. Um, a, another one is 
uh, restoring like an, a form of church leadership back to what they viewed as the early church leadership form. And so this comes into the concepts of fivefold ministry, um, which I, I definitely want to dive into that deeper at some point. Um, and so the concepts of fivefold ministry and the structure of leadership that exists in the message and in these other latter rain groups and derivatives of that ideology just spread far and wide um, throughout charismatic Christianity as the years go on. I think it's also important to understand the fertile ground that existed when William Branham brought this, because these actually weren't new ideas. William Branham, as we've said, William Branham brought nothing new. He just repackaged what other people had. Well, Whenever the early, whenever the Azusa Street Revival Pentecostals, the original latter rain, were spreading, one of their key figures in their theology was John Alexander Dowie, who we'll also get into in later episodes. But his religious cult was so widely popular in the United States that he he was literally taken over the United States by storm. And in the latter part of his life, he began claiming that he was Elijah the Restorer. And he convinced his entire sect of, what was it? It was over 100,000 people, I yeah. think, in the yeah. United States, that he was basically, he, he repurposed the book of Malachi. Malachi, when it talks, you know, Malachi chapter 4 specifically, when it's talking about the, the restoration, he refocused it from the passages in Luke, which, you know, talk about the actual restoration that happened when Jesus came. And he points it to himself, saying that he is this Elijah that's to come, the Elijah restorer. And he starts bringing the ref- restoration movement in. He's he's very key in understanding how the fivefold ministry spread. And this embedded itself in Pentecostalism. So you've got... 100,000 people plus all of the people that they influenced. So you amplify that. So like 300,000 people in the United States believe that there needs to be a restoration of the early apostle uh, apostolic gifts in the church and that there must be this key figure to come who is basically the return of Elijah, uh, etc. Some people use different personas, but the main... The one that stuck, I, I believe, was the Elijah because of basically because John Alexander Dowie. Yeah, one thing that the Restoration Movement does is it is it is it unmoors it unmoors the movement from historic Christianity, right? Um, in in a lot of in a lot of in mainstream Christianity, um, historical precedent uh, within the church plays a big role. Like right? there, there's a there's an emphasis on. Um, this is a historic church teaching, you know, should we change it? It's historic, you know, did we believe this wrong for 2,000 years? <laughs> <laughs> right. And now we need to change it. So that that's kind of how a lot of the, you know, streams of Christianity will look at a lot of things. But with with this restoration views that become, it, it, it goes into hyper and overdrive with the latter rain movement. They become unmoored from that. Historic yeah. teaching now has has no value. Well, the church has been wrong for a thousand years, two thousand years, and now we can change this teaching because we're restoring back to the original. So yeah. it provides the framework for basically somebody, if they want, can 
cross out any doctrine that they don't want and revise it under the under the heading of restorationism. I think that's very key to understanding what's coming in the next episode because like uh, people are familiar with the charismatic movement and the hyper charismatics. I think what people missed off uh, a lot of the time is that you had the latter rain and then you had the hyper latter rain, very similar to what you have with the hyper charismatics. Yeah, and and so <clears throat> I think that's a great way to put it because the groups that come out of latter rain, John, they they take these doctrines. Uh, and they go in a variety of directions. We, you know, we talked about manifested sons of God, fivefold ministry, emphasis on the sign gifts. Um, they take these and they they go to different degrees of radicalness with some of these ideas. Yes. Some of these groups are inc- become incredibly radical. Some of them moderately radical. Some of them only a little radical, right? <laughs> and right. so, so they t- it it gets different flavors of of extremeness in in the in these different groups and some of them emphasize different parts over others so th- there's one other very big thing that comes out of latter rain and this is something that intrigues me very 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 much john um and it is you know in the message we always had this there is always a strong emphasis on israel you know um israel is you know is 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 central to the end time teachings. It's central to how lots of things were looked at. And that focus on Israel also comes back to the latter rain movement. Um, that, that viewing of, um, Israel's place, um, I'll say this, that comes, it takes a turn with the latter rain movement. So British Israelism was another influence into latter rain and the Pentecostal movement. And we need to do a full episode on British Israelism at some point. And remember, William Branham tried to appeal to these people that were heavily influenced by British Israelism. Yes, yes. Not only that, remember, you also had John Alexander Dowie, who his doomsday prediction was also tied to Israel. So he heavily influenced all of these people to think Israel is the key. So William Branham, when he reinvents his stage persona, he says, my angel came on the same exact day that Israel became a nation. He's appealing to this Lateran hyper, hyper Lateran movement. Yeah. So... British Israelism um, has been in Pentecostalism from the early days. Like you mentioned, John Alexander Dowie um, had a brand of British Israelism that he believed and promoted. Um, I I mean, the whole premise of his Zion, Illinois, was founded on British Israelism. Like, we are are Israel. (laughs) And so um, British Israelism, in a nutshell, uh, started out as a belief that the Anglo-Saxon people are the ten lost tribes of Israel, okay, yes. and 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 the Jews are are the tribe of Judah. So it it, it starts out that way. Um, it starts to take a racial turn in the 1890s. Um, it becomes increasingly racial by the 1930s, um, but in the 1910s, 1920s, it makes inroads into Pentecostalism, and early Pentecostalism. Um, embraces British Israel thought in, in a flavor. Charles Parham was was strong on British Israelism. A lot of the key figures in early Pentecostal were British Israelite. There were two message um, 
key figures in the message that were British Israel supporters, Clem Davies, who worked with William Branham in the early years through the Kardashian family's sponsorship of William Branham and Avok Hagopian. They also sponsored Clem Davies. He was he was actually one of the leading spreaders of British Israelism in Canada. And Gordon Lindsay, who became William Branham's campaign manager, was speaking at these events, um, helping basically distribute British Israelism throughout Canada and the United States. Yeah, Gordon Lindsay was a member of the Anglo-Saxon World Federation um, yes. in the 1930s and, and into the 1940s. Uh, and British Israelism, um, we can trace it into the Sharon Orphanage through the Angelus Temple. So the Angelus Temple had a Bible college there. British Israelism was a, was one of the topics that was taught at the Angelus Temple. So this is Amy Semple McPherson's church in, uh, in the, I believe it's in Los Angeles. And um, Houghton took the racial side of the equation, and he was basically spreading the notion that the blacks were inferior to the whites in his version of British Israelism. He, he did. Um, and there was a man in the Angelus Temple named Wesley Swift, and the Christian identity theology, um, a, a very racial version of racist version that was birthed out of British, British Israelism, was birthed in the area really of Los Angeles by Wesley Swift and his predecessor, a man named uh, Philip Monson. So, yeah, that became William Branham's Serpent Seed Doctrine, which is another sideshow we have to have at some point. It, exactly. And so connecting this up to the Sharon Orphanage, Angelus Temple, so we're not saying Angelus Temple today is racist, or I don't no. even think they believe British Israelism. Any, like, this is all faded into the past. But yeah. back in those days, they were sponsoring the Sharon Orphanage financially, right? And yes. there was ties from Angelus Temple and that to Sharon Orphanage. So, and and, and we we know that, that these doctrines were picked up. I mean, we, we have their, we have their teachings and writings. But anyways, British Israelism is also, is where this focus on Israel originates from, okay? And by the time you get into the, into the 1930s and into the 1940s, um, the aspect of British Israelism that the Anglo-Saxon people are the ten lost tribes has started to fade away. Um, but in order to keep a lot of the other end time teachings, they, they transition to the churches no longer biologically Israel, but the church is, the church is spiritual Israel. Okay, <laughs> and and so this this then brings in that focus on Israel that that spreads out through the latter rain movement, and William Branham he picks up all of these doctrines and more from the latter rain movement, and brings them into the message. Um, and this is also why, after he's really started to come in strong contact with the with the latter rain movement, that he goes back and he reinvents his angelic visitation story to try and line it up with, I became a prophet the day Israel became a nation. <laughs> because within the confines of the latter rain movement, they say, you know, every time a restoration event happens in Israel, a restoration event happens in spiritual Israel, the church. So, um, and he chose the wrong date. He chose. <laughs> he said, "I became this, you know, in 1947, but Israel didn't actually form till 1948." Right. So, so there's a heavy, a very heavy focus on restoration in Israel tied to restoration in the church, and that idea, that concept. Which is a, I believe, is a far and wide concept. Uh, it's certainly in, 
in the message and within other churches touched by the Latter Rain movement, that that concept, that ideology is birthed in Latter Rain as well. Um, so there's these there's really interesting things that happen in Latter Rain. And John, I'm I'm like just um, chomping at the bit to deep dive into each of these different things. I don't know. There's do we so have much. time? Do we have time today, or are we going to do another episode? I think we're going to have to split into another episode. I get asked several times, how big is the influence? How widespread is the influence? Because, you know, we're just talking about the message cult, right? Yeah. But if you go back and you study this history, and take any author, I mean, not just our word, just take an author and read about Latter Rain. You've got Methodists, you've got Baptists, you've got basically every mainstream denomination at some point was influenced by Latter Rain. Yeah. Not just influenced, some of them became integral parts of Latter Rain until basically it got exposed as heresy. There were a lot of people who were involved with this, but after they separated, the problem is some of them had become so fundamental in helping spread it that they couldn't easily reverse their false teaching. So some of the false teaching that they had continued in these mainstream denominations of faith. Yes, and, you know, in terms of broad impact, I mean, there are, at the minimum, there are hundreds of millions of people who were impacted yeah. by by what the ideology that came out. At the minimum, hundreds of million. I, I believe, it's, you know, it... It might be fair to say it's in excess of a billion people have been impacted yeah. by it's, this idea. It's global. This, this is a global impact. Yes. What what came out of Latter Rain um, is very, very impactful. I, I mean, charismatic Christianity would not exist without the Latter Rain no. movement. So we, we could we could say that the charismatic movement exists because of what happened in Latter Rain. This is yeah. the forerunner movement that gave birth to the charismatic movement and and all its outcroppings. Um let me let me just give a, a book here if someone wants to to read on some of these things. Like I said there's lots of there's not a lot of great material out there, but this is one book that is pretty good. It's called The New Charismatics. It's by uh, Michael Moriarty. This book is actually from the 90s. Um, it's actually really good. I've started yes. re I got my copy coming, but I've actually started reading it, and I'm surprised at how much it actually has that is correct. Right. There's there's so much of this information that in a lot of places is just lost to history. And if it wasn't for the fact that... Um, some of us know that we are descended from Latter Rain, and we know the internal histories. I don't. I don't think anybody would even know some of this stuff anymore. No. Um, but but there are some people out there, like Michael Moriarty, who who do know what happened, know how to trace and connect all the people together. And again, I mean, I can just verify through personal knowledge a lot of what he says in here is true. Yeah. Um, that's probably the best book on it that I know of. One of the things that he got right, see, there's a point in time in which there was the Voice of Healing Revival. That's what it was called. And William Branham was the leader of this. And then the Latter Rain events happened. And basically, Latter Rain and Voice of Healing Revivals, both of them merged. Yes. And it's very difficult for people to separate this because they merged briefly and then they split. So after they split, now you've got you know, people on both sides of the aisle, those who love Lateran, those who hate it, they were all in the same pool at one time. But this book actually brings it out. William Branham was 
basically, without William Branham, you had no Laterrain. He's the one who basically created this movement. And I think that book is the one that I, that actually got it right, that it started before the Sharon Orphanage event. William Branham is basically laying all of this groundwork. Then Sharon Orphanage is what took it mainstream. Yeah, there, there's there's a lot there. Um, you know, the the teachings, the doctrines went far and wide out of Latter Rain, and they take different forms. And I look forward to uh, t- just following some of those twists and turns, maybe in our next episode, um, and maybe we can we can at, at least at a high level explain some of the key distinctive doctrines and try to trace them for people. Um, through the groups down to the present day just to show how uh, how the doctrine spread. Yeah, there's so much there. And like like you said, how do you split this? I mean, there, <laughs> it's such a complicated ball of wax anyway, but how do you break it up logically? And I think, I think for sake of time, we'll just um, basically end it here. And then in the next episode, continue on with how the restoration movement birthed, how it began, how it exploded, how it splintered. There's so much that we could get into. So I'll, I'll cut it short. If you've enjoyed our show and you want more information, you can check us out on the web. You can find us at william-branham.org and christiangospelchurch.org. For an overview of the historical research of William Branham and the healing revivals, read Preacher Behind the White Hoods, a critical examination of William Branham and his message, available on Amazon, Kindle, and Audible. Join us again next week. We've got a great episode coming. 